Tenakoto, I'm going to stand up for this bit. Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Ketoa. Welcome and thank you for attending this session. My name is Donna Miles and I have the pleasure of chairing this session, which is organized and sponsored by All Right. Well, sponsored by All Right, organized by the World Christchurch Festival. And All Right, as you know, is an organization that's been set up after the Christchurch earthquake to look after the mental health and well-being of Cantabrians. I thank them for the sponsorship for this session and also to the organizers of the World Christchurch Festival for their support for this session. On stage with me is uh, Dr. Hassan Ibrahim. He's the Senior Advisor to the Ministry of Education on Migrants and Refugees Education. And we have Abbas Nazari. He's a, a political science postgraduate student from University of Canterbury. And we have Merdoch Stevens, who's joined us here today from Wellington. And Merdoch is a great supporter of and a great friend of refugees and also campaign organizer. Um, for a campaign called Doing Our Bits. And as for me, I'm a perpetual immigrant. Um, I was born in Scotland, and uh, I was raised and schooled in Tehran, in Iran. And um, I've spent most of my life in London, and I came to New Zealand about 12 years ago, and I'm proud to make Christchurch my new home. Um, before we start our discussions today, I want to tell you why it was important to organize this session. And in order to do that, I'm going to um, ask, uh, sort of get a help from an Iranian uh, poet called Sadi. He's a 13th century um, Iranian poet. And us Iranians cannot talk about anything of any importance without dragging in a 7th century or a 13th century Iranian poet into our discussions. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, read you a poem from Sadi, who is a 13th century Iranian poet. And this poem is actually inscribed on the entrance to the United Nations building in New York. Um, the Farsi version is beautiful and very meaningful, but I think the translation also conveys the meaning. And it says, beings are members of a whole in creation of one essence and soul. If one member is afflicted with pain, other members uneasy will remain. If you have no sympathy for human pain, the, new, the name of human you cannot retain. Today, many of our fellow human beings are in pain, and we cannot retain our humanity if we don't show sympathy and if we don't respond to their suffering. We live in a world today where there is one factor that more than any other determines the chances of a child facing war or peace, despair or hope, and even life or death. And that factor is the borders within which that child is born. Think about the children in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Palestine. What chances do they have to grow up in security and safety that we take so much for granted here in New Zealand? By now, most of you would have seen or heard of the viral video of the five-year-old Syrian boy, Omran Dakhnish, that poor boy sitting on that orange chair, covered in mud and blood, 
and so silent and bewildered, uh, gazing at the world through the camera that captured those extraordinary images of him. And you know what struck me about that video? What struck me about that video the most was the fact that when he discovered blood on his hand, he was so indifferent. Um, the fact that he wasn't crying, the fact that he wasn't yelling for his mom and dad, and any parent in this room would know that a child in distress is most likely to be asking for his mom and dad. But the fact is that the shock that that boy had experienced had completely disabled his most basic instincts and impulses as a human being. And that is the true tragedy of war. It's not the physical destruction, but it's the emotional destruction that it inflicts on people. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from an article from Professor Hamid Dabashi. He wrote this article for Al Jazeera in response to people describing Omran Daknish as yet another icon for the bloody war in the Middle East. He wrote, in front of that face and those eyes, every God in every heaven and every creature on every corner of this earth, from the White House to the Kremlin, from Ankara to Riyadh, from Tehran to Cairo, stand accused. No, this is no icon. This is Omran Daknish, a Syrian boy. For one split second, shooting through a bare-faced lens to grab your throat. Yes, your throat, as it does my throat. And will not allow you to turn away or point finger at anyone else. That gaze is the look of a damned eternity on this earth. Yes, we may shed a tear, and it's very difficult not to, but believe me that enough tears have been shed to fill an ocean. What Omran and others who are stuck in conflict zone and war need is not our tears, it's our actions. For Omran's brother, Ali, it's already too late because he died of his injuries. But for others, what they need is for us to make it our priority to do something. About a year ago, around this time actually, a message popped up on my laptop from a German journalist that I had never met or even heard of. She said she was writing to tell me that she was living in Christchurch and she wanted to do something. In less than a week, I was standing with Anke, the German journalist that wrote to me, with an army of poets, musicians, artists, writers, politicians in front of the botanical gardens, and those who gave their time voluntarily to participate in an event that we organized in solidarity with refugees. We raised awareness of the refugee issues. We had clothes donations, money donations, and so on. It really turned out that it wasn't just me and Anke that who wanted to do something, that there were actually others who wanted to um, do something and participate. I'm not sure if Anke is here in the audience. Hi, Anke, please uh, introduce yourself. It's his Anke, and Anke actually is one of... Thank you, Anke. That message uh, started a beautiful friendship between us. And, um, and Anke is one of the 21 global correspondents that has contributed to a book that's been published in Germany a few days ago. 
and um, it basically talks about refugee status in um, different countries. So what I'm hoping that you will get out of this session today is not only an awareness of what the problems and challenges are, but are also inspired to do something, to make it your priority to do something, because really that is what makes a difference. So before further ado, we'll go to our important guest today. Um, there are um, two of our guests here are refugees themselves, and they know uh, firsthand about the issues. So we'll start with uh, Abbas Nazari. And um, what I would like Abbas to do is to tell us about the background events and the journey that brought him here to New Zealand. Thank you. Do you mind if I stand up as well? Not at all. <laughs> hey, uh, kia ora, good morning, guys. Um, my name is uh, Abbas Nazari, and I'd like to thank you guys for coming here today, giving up some time in your Friday morning to attend this session. Um, on stage assembled here, you've got a former refugee, a refugee advocate, a policy advisor, and a journalist. So we've got the whole ground covered. Um, hey, I want to I want to start off uh, similar to how Donna started off, and just show you where I'm from. And um, that's home for me. Well, I'm you know true Cantabrian, but that's where I was born in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, that's the front yard to my house over there. And uh, born in a very uh, tiny village in a mountain valley uh, outside of Kabul in a place called Ghazni. And that was childhood for me growing up. Uh, I took these photos in 2012 when I went back to Afghanistan and just toured the country around with my dad for about a month and just sort of relived my childhood. Um, that, that's, that was our village. We lived in this uh, valley where the river ran through and farming and subsistence living was the way um, our people managed to form a living. Uh, that was our farm just in front of the house. Where am I pointing this? <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that, that was life in a sense. Um, so I lived there till about the age of six, six and a half, seven years old. And uh, this was in early 2000 when the Taliban were at the height of their power. And by then, the war in Afghanistan was just subject, uh, uh, centralized in the large urban areas like Kabul. And where we lived outside of Kabul, it seemed tranquil. But uh, soon, as the, as the Taliban gained all of Kabul and the war started spreading to the, to the rural areas, we knew that we were no longer safe there as well. Um, as a little kid, you don't really understand the situation that you're in until you start to see it come closer and closer. So we lived there till the start of 2001. And as the war got closer and the Taliban kept going village to village, uh, my dad made the decision for us that we were no longer safe in our country and we needed to leave. Now, back then, um, the safest country or the nearest safest country to do is to cross the border into Iran or somehow make your way into one of the refugee camps in Pakistan. And that's what we did. Um, this is, uh, we crossed the border into Pakistan and we lived there for about three or four months. And herein begins this, my great journey to studying political science and international relations at uni, but herein we start to see how the mechanisms of law and politics start to work. We're now technically refugees, people who no longer feel safe in their own country and people who need to flee and find security elsewhere. And the way to do that is uh, you have two channels, uh, one of which that you can apply through the UN system, 
the United Nations Human uh, High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR, those big white tents with the blue logo on them that you see camped out all over Jordan and Turkey. Um, another way you can do that is by physically arriving on the shores of the country in which you seek asylum, which is what we're starting to see happen in Europe. People arriving on foot, by boat, on the shores of the country in which they seek refuge. In mid-2000, the country that we wished to apply or we wished to arrive in was Australia, because back then they had a, what you would call an open border policy. And I know boat people, as they're called in the media, are a very contentious issue. But we weren't aware of that in 2000 when we made the journey. And uh, I'm pointing it at the TV. <laughs> Up. And that was us. Uh, you wouldn't remember in um, 2000 the Tampa affair. So that was our boat that we jumped on from Jakarta to cross the Indian Ocean and to try and make it to Australia. So I was about seven years old, and we were on that boat, the Palapa 2. I'm not sure what happened to Palapa 1. <laughs> and that photo was taken from the captain's bridge, looking down on us as they, they uh, made that mayday call, and they picked us up in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And herein, and I'm sure you guys would remember, it started this huge political bomb that just sort of fell on the Australian system, because in 2001, they were going through an election period at the same time and boat people became the number one issue of topic. And so we have, here we are in the middle of this international debacle between, we've got 400 odd refugees who have come from Indonesia, picked up in international waters. We're heading to Australia, but we get picked up by this Norwegian freighter ship. So nobody really knows any ownership, nobody knows who's responsible for us. And so what we have is we spent about 40 days and 40 nights at sea while we're trying to figure out where our futures lie. Life on board the ship, um, lived on containers, uh, lived on containers, because obviously it's a container ship, they don't have place for 400 odd people, so they opened up some of the containers that were empty, and men and women were separated, the children in another, in, in another container, and toilet facilities on the other side. And that was life until we figured out um, who was responsible, and it was while we were on board that ship that uh, New Zealand, raised its hand and said, uh, we're willing to accept those people. And so a decision was made where they accepted about half of us, those of us in families, including myself, but those of us that weren't in families, those <coughs> single men or the elder sons that had left their family to go earn a living abroad, they were uh, transferred to Nauru, which I'm sure you've heard of. And they lived there for you know, three, four, five, six years until the applications were processed. Um, my, my story obviously is a happy ending. We, we stayed on, on board the Tampa and then we transferred to the HMAS Menorah, which is Australian Navy frigate. I stayed half a day in Nauru while a Air New Zealand charter plane came and picked us up and took us to Auckland, where the Mangere Resettlement Centre is, and uh, we've been living here ever since. Something that really, mind the pun, rocked the boat was in, uh, while we were on the menorah, the Navy frigate, and they were starting to settle, you know, try and figure out who they were accepting and how to go about this logistically, was the Twin Towers came down, 9-11. So I was on a boat 
on that day. And suddenly you have every brown Middle Eastern folk is now this uh, confused as a terrorist, right? So you have this huge dynamic at play. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to discuss the dynamics later in the discussion, but I just wanted to know that this is, uh, I guess, a happy ending for myself, but there are about 60 million other people who are in limbo, who are you know, without a home, without a state, without that sense of security. Just as we were on the boat for over a month, uh, their lives are in limbo for years. And that's why it's so important to have dialogues like such and to engage in what, how New Zealand is doing and how the global community has acted as well. Thank you all. you as our speakers talk to think about the questions that you would like to answer because we are planning to leave about 20 minutes before the end of the session, hopefully 20 minutes before the end of the session for your question and answers. So please think of them as we go through the talks. Can I just before we go to Dr. Ibrahim acknowledge um, another um, refugee mother and child who are here on the stage. Asari, would you like to stand up for us? Thank you, Asari's family. Um, a beautiful family, beautiful, three beautiful children, and um, the family was featured in the press. So if you Google it online, you'll be able to uh, read about the extraordinary journey that has brought them here in Christchurch, and, and what a great addition they have been to our city. And uh, thank you very much for attending. And also, I saw some late arrivals. Um, uh, I mentioned the um, refugee solidarity events that we had. Richard, would you like to stand up? Joanna and Richard. There are some of the artists that on that day helped us to make the events possible. Thank you, Richard. So Dr. Ibrahim will hand in the floor to you, but maybe perhaps before that, Abbas, I have one quick question for you, and that is about your um, resettlement experience in Christchurch. You were seven years old that mm. when you came here. I think life would have been quite easy for you to adjust, but yeah. talk, me, um, talk to us about your family, your mom and dad, what their um, experience of um, settlement, resettlement has been. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, it's a whole nother story when you arrive here as a young kid because you, you integrate into society very well. You pick up the language very quickly. I mean, I remember when I went to Richter Primary School, um, I was in ESOL classes for about three months before my English was good enough to be mainstream. Um, but for <laughs> your parents, who obviously have lived all of their life this, in a certain way in a whole different society, it's a, it takes a long time for them to wrap their head around just, you know, even the laws and the customs and the social norms. Uh, I remember those first three, four years were very, very difficult um, uh, for my mum and dad just to integrate. But once they started to see that, uh, I mean, their kids were starting to flourish. And I remember, I guess, one of the happiest days was, um, you know, when you really start to see that, yep, this is home, was when we became New Zealand citizens in 2004, and that's when it started to really dawn on them that, yep, this is, this is where we're gonna put an anchor, and this is where we're gonna resettle. And since then, it's been a long journey, but, um, you know, they've obviously, you know, learned the language, they've, you know, they've all got jobs, and they're working in it. So it's, it's a much longer road. It's a lot more painful for the older generation coming in, but for kids, it's a lot easier, and that's why you start to see the kids taking up the, the roles of adults, usually, 
they start to, you know, it's them that take them to appointments as such or act as translators and, and that sort of thing. So it's quite normal. Thank you. Dr. Ibrahim, the floor is all yours. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. I want to greet you first with a Islamic greeting, which means peace be upon you. And I also want to greet you in the most beautiful, most important language on this planet, which is so, uh, Samaria, and it's called Malimunaksa. And uh, I want to tell from the outset that I'm not here on my official capacity, but I'm here to talk to you as a former refugee. And uh, to start with my talk, first of all, I want to take you through my journey. And for you to understand that journey, it's important that you know where I come from. I come from a country called Somalia, which is in the Horn of Africa. And it's also the most beautiful country on this earth. Somalia is in the Horn of Africa. And for you to understand the legacy of colonization and how much uh, current international politics can influence and impact upon uh, the domestic politics of one nation, then the place to go to and to uh, research is Somalia. Somalis are one nation, they speak one language, follow the same religion, but it was the colonizers that have splitted that one community into five different countries and eventually ended up in the hands of five different countries that they don't belong in terms of their language, in terms of their religion, in terms of their culture. And it is the legacy of that or the issues that have evolved from that colonization that is impacting upon the Somalis today, which is why you see many Somalis coming to Western world as refugees. In the context of migration, people are either pulled or um, pushed from their country for two reasons. One is when people are forced from their country because of prevailing circumstances like a conflict, or when they are pulled to another country because of economic reasons. Now, for the Somalis, Somalis is a very wealthy country. It has got uh, the longest coastal area. So the bull factor does not apply in the context of the Somali migration. But it's rather the latter, which is the push. Somali conflict started in the early 80s, when a group of insurgents supported by America created internal conflict in Mogadishu and uh, started to create insurgency in the central parts of Somalia. Now, those warring groups, in order to mobilize communities, started to form liberation groups, which are divided along clan lines. And because the colonizers divided the Somalis along clan lines and set boundaries between clans, those movements eventually formed strong armies, which toppled the army, I mean, the, the, the government of the day. Then that resulted in those very clan-affiliated groups not agreeing on power sharing, and each clan or each group being supported by an external factor, whether it's you know, Saudi Arabia or Middle Eastern countries, or whether it is Italy, the former colonizer, whether it was America, okay? 
though they couldn't agree on power because these external factors wanted to exert their pressure and have strong influence on the government that's meant to be formed, which is why you heard about the conflict, the tribal conflict in Somalia. So the conflict itself is not one which has been created from internally. It was somehow externally imposed conflict. Okay? So when the conflict erupted in Mogadishu, I myself, I was working for the government. And uh, in refugee context, people either can censor the, the upcoming situation early enough and then they can leave, or otherwise people can sometimes take time to understand that the, the, the situation is not improving and eventually decided to leave. For me, it took me a while to appreciate that the situation in Somalia wasn't improving, so I had to flee. But just to give you an understanding of how the situation or how the circumstance was when I left or when the war broke out, just imagine you left your homes this morning. Some of you may have come as far as from New Brighton. Some may have come from, uh, let's say, Templeton. And then all of a sudden you hear things there is a, uh, you know, forces that have occupied between where we are now and New Brighton. And there is no way you can go back home. Okay? And the, all the network, telecommunication networks are disrupted, not working anymore. So people start fleeing to different parts, some going to, let's say, Australia, because that is the only way which you may deem safe. But what you should also realize is that when the communities at war itself, it's hard for you to trust the community living in Templeton or Ashperton. It's also going to be hard for you even to decide how you can make your way through um, Cowboy, okay, Blenheim, when you feel the fastest place to go to is Auckland. And because you left your home unprepared this morning, you are not anticipating this is going to happen to you. The rest of the family are not aware where you are, and as the head of your family, you don't know where the rest of your family is. So how will you contemplate? That's exactly the situation I went through myself. I wasn't aware of where my family have fled for almost six months, not knowing whether they are alive or not. And it was only after six months that I heard they were in the northern part of Somalia, where my wife's family were. And that was the happiest moment. But before that, for the six months, when I didn't know where they are, it was hell. And uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a memory that will always live with me. It's a memory that will shape my whole thinking about, you know, um, people in turmoil. It's a memory that will shape my understanding of families, what community means. It's a memory that will shape my understanding of peace and conflict. It's a memory that will shape my understanding when I see a community in a conflict zone. It's a memory that will help me to understand the circumstances, the difficulties, the adversities that people fleeing from war can experience. But on the other hand, it's a situation that many people cannot comprehend. It's only those who have gone through such experience that they can understand the true dynamics of such communities. 
So I, for me, I eventually ended up in a place called Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia and Somalia had a long-standing conflict and war because part of Somalia was annexed to Ethiopia by colonial powers. And those communities have always been fighting for their independence. And for me to move from my country and move to, and to save protection in a country that has occupied my people and has been killing my people for decades and generations, it was the hardest thing. It was the hardest thing. You know, when you seek protection from your enemy and escaping from your own people, and you know the mentality or the thinking that is shaping your people's view on what is happening is not actually that's coming from the bottom of their heart. And it's something that they have no control of. It's something that is decided upon by external factors. It's very hard. And it's a memory that's lasting with me after today. Last week, a place in Somalia was blown up. People, women in the market. And this morning, people were in the beach in a place called Makodisho, also blown up. And for me, although I'm living in peace, but mentally, I don't get dressed. It's as if you have a tree where the root is rotten, but the leaves and the rest of the branches are flourishing. By that I mean my roots in Somalia, my people. But the leaves and the branches, my family and the communities around me. But although I'm safe, but I also feel that I'm losing or I'm missing something. And that is the people, my community, my country, the people that I grew up with. Thank you. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you very much for sharing that story with us. Um, and isn't it amazing um, how common our experiences are? There are always external powers and external factors um, that cause displacements of people and how nations are really not in control of their own fate. Um, now, Dr. Ibrahim, talk to me about um, the idea of identity. Um, you've been here for 18 years. Um, do you regard yourself as a Somalian or a Kiwi? It's Okay. <laughs> I think that will require a little bit of research. Okay. And when I say, said you, are you referring to me personally or you are referring to my family? Because it's a bit different. And I, I'll tell you the reason why. In 2011 World Cup, my daughters, you know, prepared some cakes. They painted their face while wearing the veil with all blacks, fans, distributing cake. And all of a sudden, I asked them, why are you doing this? And said, we're here to support the all blacks. And they asked me, who are you supporting? I told them I'm supporting the Springboks. And they asked me, why? I told them, because I'm an African. Then the youngest one said, then you're not one of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why are you not Africans? <laughs> they said, we are Kiwis. <laughs> okay, said our life and soul is for all blacks. So what that is telling us is that we're 
in my own family, there are two cultures. Okay? For me, as I said before, I consider myself Somali. Okay? African, Muslim. So I have these multiple identities that will shape my thinking, my view of the world, the way I shape my life. But when it comes to my children, they're a different world. I can remember a few years back, one of the politicians made comments about the Somalis, telling them to go back home. My youngest one, who was only, I don't know, five or six years old, said, oh, Dad, how am I going to leave my few friends if we were to leave? Now, for her, this is where she belongs. Okay? She, 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 she believes, you know, sincerely that she's queer. And she believes this community. But for me, although I believe I'm a New Zealander and I'm part of the community, but I also feel that I'm somehow being uprooted from somewhere. And I still got that connection. When things go wrong in Samaria, that comes, what comes before me is, you know, the people that I grew up with, my own extended families. But for my children, that's different. Okay? So if you ask me where I belong, I can easily say I'm torn between two, <laughs> I'm torn between two cultures. That is the New Zealand culture and the Somali culture. Thank you. Although I suspect that when your children are older, when they get older, they will have a yearning for their cultural roots. And I think that's, yes. that's why it's important that we have the cultural institutions yeah. that support our migrant population, so that they've got an anchor, so they've got a strong sense of um, identity and belonging. Now we're going to go to Merzakh Stevens, and I've got a specific question for you, Merzakh. I would like to know whether, in your view, New Zealand is meeting its international obligation when it comes to the refugee issues. Thanks, Donna. Um, I'm, I'm going to stay seated. Um, so I, I'm here today um, not because I grew up somewhere exotic. I, I grew up uh, in Belclutha. Um, <laughs> which is always a letdown after amazing speakers <laughs> who have had these uh, huge, huge, like Abbas's trip. You know, I was swimming in the Klutha River when he was crossing uh, the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, to get there. So very, um, very low level in comparison. But for two years in 2009 and 10, uh, I wanted to see some of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, you know, in addition to New Zealand. And so I spent those two years uh, in the Middle East, mostly. And um, uh, particularly time in Iran, meeting some Afghan refugees there and lived in Aleppo in the north of Syria uh, for a few months before the war. And that led me on to start a campaign called Doing Our Bit. Uh, started in 2013 to seek to double New Zealand's refugee quota from 750 places to 1,500, a quota that had, hasn't increased in 30 years. Um, so to answer the question around obligations, um, I, I, again, I'm going to draw back to, to what Abbas was saying about the two different ways that someone can become a refugee. Um, so to become a refugee, you have to meet uh, the elements of the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees um, that was created in 1951, like six years after the end of World War II, to deal with all the people who were in Europe who didn't have a home they could go back to. So it was specifically designed to allow people who were no longer in their homeland 
to apply for and to receive protection from the countries and the places they were living in. Uh, so no one in 1951 was thinking about New Zealand, and it didn't affect New Zealand so much at that point. Uh, in 1967, um, so in the 1951 agreement, it only covered Europe, um, so it was only for Europeans. Uh, in 1967, the rights to claim uh, refugee status was extended, extended to the rest of the world. But still, New Zealand is kind of a very unique place because when you're thinking about people claiming refuge, they have to cross a border, and our borders are some of the hardest to cross in the world. So in terms of the legal obligation that New Zealand is meeting, yes, we are meeting it. Uh, when people come to New Zealand and apply for protection as an asylum seeker, uh, New Zealand looks at them, asks whether they're being persecuted. Um, if they are, we accept them. If not, they get to appeal. If that appeal's rejected, they're deported. The problem is, though, that uh, last year, 1.1 million people applied for asylum in Germany. Uh, in Sweden, 160,000 people applied for asylum. Sweden's roughly twice New Zealand's population. So if you half Sweden, that would be 80,000 people applying for asylum in New Zealand in a year. Last year, New Zealand received 320 applications for asylum. Uh, and the reason that that's so low um, is obviously because we don't have these porous borders, but also because we don't let people get on airplanes to come here. There's pre-screening of passengers. I mean, you've probably all felt it, I've felt it. People looking for return uh, tickets, looking for visas, looking for residency to see that you can actually get on a plane to come here. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the people who are smart enough and able enough to get here, um, however they can get here and claim asylum, will be treated um, as they should be under the law. Uh, those who want to come here, and there are many million refugees around the world at the moment, um, who would just, who just want safety, actually? I mean, mostly when I talk to refugee populations uh, who came here under the refugee quota, they'd never heard of New Zealand before they came here. Uh, they Google it, and they see that it's peaceful, and we have sheep. Um, <laughs> And they think, well, it's peaceful, we'll go there. So if we're talking about obligations, we're certainly meeting the legal obligations. But I think around refugee issues, um, there are other responsibilities that go beyond the law. Um, so while we had 320 applications last year, and we accepted about 120 of those people, uh, we also took 750 people in on a thing called the refugee quota. Um, as well as 300 people uh, on family reunification. The refugee quota I like to imagine as a way that we top up our asylum seeker numbers because they're so low. Um, so there are only a few countries around the world that seriously use the refugee quota system to bring people into their countries. Uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are some of the strongest. And we all share this geographic distance from the places where refugees generally come from. The US a little less so with their southern border and people coming in from Central America. So while we meet the legal obligations around asylum seekers, and that's how most refugees get resettled, uh, there's a murky area around whether we're really doing our fair share in terms of topping it up to meet uh, the kind of work that other European nations and other nations that host refugees do. Um, on top of that, of course, there's a lot of countries who haven't signed the Refugee Convention. Um, so the big four surrounding Syria, 
Um, Tur well, Turkey signed the 1951 convention, which is kind of ironic. So if you're from France and you're seeking refugee status, you can go to Turkey and they have to assess you and allow you to work there and you're protected. But if you're from Syria because they haven't signed the 1967 one, uh, you don't get those protections. Uh, the same with Jordan, uh, the same with Lebanon and Egypt. So 86% of the Syrian refugees are still in these countries surrounding Syria. Um, it's always, it always irked me last year when people were saying the refugee crisis has started. I mean, my friends in Syria had been feeling that crisis for five years. So when we look at whether New Zealand's meeting those responsibilities in addition to the obligations, uh, there's a couple of things we can do to work out how many people would be right. Is 750 right? Why? Why not? And I kind of like to go back to those old metaphysical presuppositions around space and time to determine what's right. So we compare ourselves through space to other geographical entities that take people in, Australia, Canada, the US, and through time, back to what we've done in the past. Um, so the campaign that I started to double the refugee quota was based on the fact that in 2013, when it started, Australia took five times as many refugees per capita as New Zealand. Um, so to double it, I mean, there's been some changes now, but to double it would still not be um, catching up with Australia. Um, we'd be doing a little bit more. Uh, and then through time, if we look back to 1987, when the quota was set, it was actually 800 places back then. Um, and it was cut by the Bolger government in 1997 to 750. Uh, so looking at that, even before a crisis uh, which emerged on the world stage last year, even before that, doubling the quota would have made up for um, the changes through time, um, through population growth since 1987. It wouldn't bring us up to uh, the same levels as countries like Australia or Canada, more similar to the US and to the UK, um, if we doubled it. And yeah, I think that's, oh, and one, sorry, one final thing. Um, I keep thinking of, of the framing, listening to these guys speaking, one of the biggest problems we've had in the campaign is this idea that refugees, there's an obligation around them and there's a cost to them. Um, all the government data on refugees, actually like a lot of government data at the moment, focuses exclusively on the short-term costs. And when you're sitting by guys like these, a doctor and a political science graduate, I think, like, how, how are we not measuring benefits here? We're not even measuring medium-term economic benefits. We're measuring short-term economic costs to say that refugees are somehow a drain on the country. And for a, a government that's so interested in um, at least economics, well, you know, fiscal, fiscal imperatives, but economic imperatives as well, I'd hope they would see that the refugees that come into the country are actually a great benefit to us. Um, and not just culturally or whatever lovely thing us humanists um, like, Actually, economically, it's, it's a great value. Mm. Thank you very much, Meza. I think this, this short-term thinking uh, at the cost of long-term benefits is really problematic in every aspect. That's new liberal <laughs> sort of uh, thinking that also affects our economy. So I'm conscious of the time. We've only got 15 minutes left before the end of the session. And I would like to start taking questions from the floor. We've got, um, I'm told we've got two microphone runners. And if you just put your hand up, one of the microphone runners will come to you and you'll be able to ask questions. 
So um, we've got one microphone runner over here, and there's a lady over here. So if you've got a question, please put your hand up, and they will come to you. Any questions? Sir? Donna, I remember when you um, started publishing this list columns on the topic about a year ago. Yeah, sorry, I just repeat that. Yeah. Donna, I remember when you when you started publishing your first columns um, about this this whole issue, and what was the response then? Well, I know what the response was. Maybe it'd be good to hear from you how you felt about the um, a lot of the comments you got, and what, what, where do you think they're coming from? Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Yes. <laughs> Good question. Thank you, Anke. I've uh, long decided not to read the comments. <laughs> um, because I think something um, there's something about um, people who make online comments. I think the fact that they're anonymous kind of uh, sometimes brings out the worst in people. And um, also, because it's not face-to-face -face communication, people often sort of say things and write things without really thinking it through properly. Um, I have to say that there was a lot of comments around the fact that we already have um, our own problems here. We already have um, sort of the housing crisis. We are not able to to look after our own people, why should we look after others? And um, I'm sure that this is a question that uh, comes up quite often, and I would like to actually get Merdoch here to answer that question, because during his um, sort of um, campaign to double the quota, you've said that this really um, comes up often and time and time again. So what would your response be? Because we've discussed this before, actually, and I know that Meredith's got a good answer. So over to you. I mean, part of it harks back to that, that question of what a cost is, and as a society, if we want to be doing things in the short term. Um, but also, I mean, a lot of the problems that we're talking about in New Zealand at the moment, um, house prices and poverty, um, are affecting our cities. Um, New Zealand's already moving away from resettling refugees in Auckland. Um, we haven't resettled them in Christchurch for about, well, since the earthquake, six years now. Um, but 50% of New Zealanders, about 2.3 million New Zealanders, live in an area that resettle no refugees. So we're nowhere near um, using our capacity um, for community volunteers, as well as some of the infrastructure that exists in the regions. So places like Tauranga, New Plymouth, Invercargill, they resettle no refugees. And there is a lot of infrastructure there. And there are some jobs in those communities as well. Um, so that's one of my answers, that there is actually win, uh, like possibilities for win-win um, resettlement options. It's also kind of worth thinking of that quota of 750 people um, as families. So 95% of refugees come to New Zealand as a family unit. And so if we're looking at state houses, which only 80% of refugees go into to start with, um, so let's imagine, say, 180 families coming in. Um, that's about 150 houses. And we've got um, Tauranga and Invercargill selling off state houses at the moment. So part of it is expanding the places where refugees can resettle. Also to rural regions, like a lot of our, our number one refugee um, place we, we take refugees from is Myanmar. A lot of those people um, have skills working in horticulture, but we don't have a resettlement place at the moment to match their skills. 
So what we really need is the ambition of the government to match people with their skills to our infrastructure capabilities. And this is what our government likes to pretend, well, not, okay. they like to say that they're interested in, um, but they don't have ambition around refugees at the moment. Um, and I would really like to have seen that in the last review, but it hasn't, hasn't quite come through yet. And I think also we should really um, sort of ask ourselves, it's, I, I heard um, Minister Bill English himself saying that the housing crisis wasn't caused by lack of money. That's exactly what he said. He said, oh, we just don't have the resources to deal with this. So it's, um, but also if it, even if it is the question of money, we should really be um, asking our government to prioritize that money correctly. Um, think about the cost of sending troops to the Middle East, to Iraq for two years. That cost is exactly the cost of increasing our refugee quota. Um, now we need to ask ourselves what we would like our government to do, to intervene in a war that is not ours to fight, that actually a war that has um, a problem that has arisen from foreign intervention in the first place, or do we really want to uh, provide a response, a productive response to what is a human crisis. So there's a lot of ways that the government's spending money which we think is not to the benefit um, of uh, New Zealanders and the, the, the wider um, sort of international community. So again, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing and deciding where the money should go. Do we have an, another question? Yes. Oh, I just wanted to ask um, maybe Abbas or Dr. Ibrahim, their experience of acceptance or racial discrimination as Very they've come question. into the community? Good question, thank you. Okay. <laughs> when I arrived in 1998, it was almost a time when New Zealand uh, was only accepting quota refugees for uh, a few years, because the quota started in 1987. It was a time when the concept of assimilation was also quite popular because the American melting pot model was working quite well. The other thing is that it was a time when we, the Somalis, were the first group of black Muslims refugees in New Zealand. But considering the difference in terms of language, culture, values that we have came with New Zealand, it was far more better to, for, to uh, compare with other countries that refugees have gone. And I think in New Zealand context, because New Zealand had a system of, which is built on more on human rights, I think the system, although it wasn't prepared or the policies and the structure of the time were not meant to support people from either an English-speaking background or a European background and was somewhat based on the experience of the mainstream society, the wider society was quite accepting. Now, you cannot obviously say that 100% of people were very accepting. And there is no way on this earth where one community can claim it's free from either discrimination or racism. It exists everywhere, even in my own community. Okay? And that's something, you know, coming with all human beings. But compared with the huge differences that our communities have come with, 
the limited knowledge and understanding and the limited exposure to people of other cultures in New Zealand at the time, I think it was uh, better. But since then, things have changed. If you look at in Christchurch, you know, the demography of Christchurch, it has changed. And I think with the understanding of people's understanding about the diversity, as well as the issue of globalization, coupled with how Christchurch itself is now becoming more multi-ethnic, I think we are far more better than other countries, for example, in uh, France or even in Australia, where the assimilation approach was the model quite desired in their resettlement and strategy. But for us in New Zealand, because of the Treaty of Waitangi and the Maori influence as well as the Pacifica, the model was already there. And uh, we, the newcomers, simply had to follow the development path of the Maori and the Pacifica. And of course, the institutions in New Zealand have learned a lot from the Tangata Fenua as well as the Pacifica people. It was much easier for them to address the new arrivals' needs. And I think that has contributed quite well in terms of making New Zealand more inclusive society. Thank Abbas, your thoughts? Um, no, that perfectly summed it up. I mean, uh, again, it goes back to if you find that children tend to integrate a lot easier um, into society than adults do. So I can only speak on my own experiences. I've never encountered any racial prejudice or anything. I just sort of got into the thick of it, started playing rugby, and then I think I got accepted <laughs> after that. Um, so I, I, I never felt any of that, but. I think for adults, especially uh, language is a key barrier that, that tends to come across quite a bit. But I mean, speaking of my own experiences, when we arrived at Crushish Airport, uh, I think it was December uh, 2001, uh, at the airport they had uh, community volunteers who had signed up with, uh, obviously they knew that the Tampa refugees were coming and there was a program for them to be sort of like a family volunteer. So come, you know, pick them up from the airport with a bunch of flowers in hand, drive them to their house, and then just sort of, hey, here's the bus stop, here's the dentist, this is your school. So for the first six months very intensively, and then for the year and year and a half, and then after that, once we picked up our own feet and started going about our own business, we had that fantastic support network with us. And I can honestly say that's a credit to the institutions that are here. And also now with these uh, family repatriation uh, networks and also more refugees coming in, there's a whole support network there for them. Now we pick up that slack. So when there's an Afghan, uh, Afghan family coming here, they have that whole network in place for them to, you know, to show them around so they actually feel not as strangers but as you know, welcome to, to Christchurch. I don't want to spoil the good news, but uh, I've recently gone back to university and I'm studying journalism, and as part of my journalistic work, I have been interviewing 
<clears throat> Muslim woman in Christchurch. And uh, one Kiwi woman who, um, she's a Kiwi, uh, born in New Zealand, brought up in New Zealand, but um, has converted to Islam and has recently decided to wear the hijab. And um, she was telling me about her experience of um, how her life has changed. And she was telling me that about five weeks ago, she was standing outside Northland Mall, and this woman determinedly walked towards her, and she wears glasses and sometimes doesn't recognize people until they come really close. So, so, so she was squinting, trying to see whether she knew this woman that was walking towards her, and she couldn't really recognize her. Anyway, she just came up to her only to spit at her, and that left her really shocked. And, um, and she's told me that this was quite an um, unfortunately common experience amongst women who wear hijab throughout New Zealand. She told me whenever that there is um, an sort of event overseas, that the Muslim women in New Zealand brace themselves uh, because they know that there will be incidents of abuse and assault towards Muslim women. Uh, there are incidents of hijab pulling, um, name-calling, and uh, Muslim women with children are particularly vulnerable. Um, and that really saddened me because, again, my own experience of sort of an accented immigrant in New Zealand, I have never um, experienced any sort of um, racial discrimination at all. I found New Zealanders very accepting and friendly and tolerant. But I think we have to recognize that sometimes um, some visible minorities have got a very different experience. And also Islamophobia is real. And unfortunately, it's here as well. And it's really important that we acknowledge it and, um, and we um, make sure that um, Muslim women have got every right to dress the way they wish. And, and this saddens me because I come from a country where women are not allowed to dress the way they like. We are forced to, to wear the hijab. And I think forcing people to unveil is just as bad as forcing people to veil. And, um, and it, it should not be tolerated in a liberal democratic society. I see that our time has come to an end. I would like to thank all of you for coming here and listening to us. I think you've already taken the important step of doing something, and your participation here really means a lot to us. Thank you so much. And thank you very much to everyone in stage. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's nice.